Hello and welcome to your Over the Farmgate podcast, brought to you by Farmers Guardian. We're your hosts, Ben Briggs and Olivia Midgley. Don't forget, we'll bring you a new episode of the podcast every Tuesday. Just make sure you subscribe on your favourite platform. On the show this week, I speak to two of the farming help charities, RABI and the Addington Fund, to hear how they're negotiating the major funding gaps left by COVID-19, plus the big farming survey, the biggest piece of research of its kind. And it's all about getting a true picture of the key challenges affecting people's physical and mental health and how these then impact on the running of farm businesses. But first, it was one of the Conservative manifesto pledges and last week, the government finally announced a consultation on gene editing technology. So, how soon could farmers benefit from better performing crops? How much will they cost? And how can they help the industry adapt to climate change? Farmers Guardian and arable farming reporter Alice Dyer has been speaking to Professor Jonathan Napier of Rothamsted Research and asked how soon the technology could go from the lab to the field. You're still ploughing on. And so we get Farmers Guardian delivered directly to your door every week and access the latest news from the world of agriculture 24-7 through fginsight.com. Simply subscribe to Farmers Guardian. Check out our latest deals at fginsight.com slash subscriptions today. So Jonathan, I guess the first question is, um, what is gene editing? And if gene editing regulation is relaxed, when would growers likely start to see um, this technology available for them to actually use? The great thing about about gene editing is that it can, um, it, you know, it can really speed up plant breeding. Um, you know, and we all know that plant breeding in general takes a very long time. I mean, if you think about the amount of time it takes for a, a new variety to get onto the national lists, it's probably been, you know, in the works for probably 12 years or something like that. Yeah. Time scale. You know, so if if gene editing, you know, which is obviously just a, is a much more precise tool than conventional plant breeding can, can compress that time scale, then, you know, the sooner that, that all comes into play, the better, if you see what I mean. Um, you know, because basically gene editing allows you to tweak one gene, um, you know, whereas obviously in conventional plant breeding, you you know, you're, you're sort of looking for a needle in a haystack and then you've got to sort out all the other modifications and mutations that have been introduced just by natural variation and random uh, random changes. You've, you know, a lot of those you don't want um in your in your breeding pool from when you're just using conventional breeding and you've got to back cross them out and do all those things and that's really what takes time i mean you know so that's i mean that's the general overview i I would say that gene editing can really compress the amount of time of going from you know somebody in the lab saying aha i found a gene that is like involved in resistance to this pathogen or something like that and we want to try and breed that into into a crop using conventional plant breeding that could like i say that could take you at least a decade yeah um with gene editing it'll take you i mean it's not going to happen over you know it's not going to suddenly say well we can do it in three weeks yeah but but you know it can significantly compress can compress that you know by uh, you know by by several years um you know and that will i think be of of benefit in general to to agriculture 
Yeah, definitely. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Every fundamental research lab in in you know in in the UK plant sciences departments and the universities, they all use gene editing and GM all the time. I mean, it's just a standard tool. Yeah. Um, you know, to make and they use it to make fundamental discoveries, like I say, to discover, oh, this is a resistance gene to this pathogen, or this is a way to enhance this crop. But then when it comes to rolling out that technology so that it's beneficial to farmers and ultimately to the consumer and the public, it's it's quite difficult to do that if you can't use that technology. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I think, you know, from my point of view, I think this consultation is, is a really good thing. But I think also a key thing is being able to demonstrate what the benefit is to the farmer and ultimately to the consumer as well. Yeah. And are you able to give us some examples of some of the crops that you're working on at Rothamsted at the moment? So my colleague at Rothamsted, Nigel Halford, has got a really nice project um, using gene editing to try and um, to, to reduce the levels of acrylamide that end up in in um, in wheat based you know uh, wheat products. So acrylamide is a big problem now um, when you um, when you cook um, or uh, uh, bake um, products, um, and uh, if you cook it at the wrong temperature, then you get too much acrylamide. Um, And, you know, so, I mean, it's sort of, you know, I I, I mean, acrylamide is the sort of thing you see on a on a crispy baked potato or on a or on a brown chip or something like that. It's actually quite tasty, but it's also not very good for you. (laughs) Um, And you get it and you you get it with any any um, product that has been sort of cooked um, um, in a particular way. And so Nigel is working on has got a project to um, use gene editing to reduce the level of the precursor for acrylamide, which is which is um, a, a chemical called asparagine. It's an amino acid, and if you can reduce the levels of asparagine in the in the seeds of the wheat, um, then you will reduce the levels of acrylamide when the wheat gets cooked and made into a loaf of bread or whatever, and that will be a good thing for the consumer because they're not being exposed to, to this potentially toxic compound. Okay. You know, so, and that you know, to me, that's a really nice example of what you can use gene editing for. Um, you know. So, could that go into, say, any variety of wheat as kind of an addition, or would a whole new variety have to be bred? I suppose um, with um, that characteristic. I think once you've, I mean, once you've, I mean, so if you if you did your gene editing in in the standard. Uh, um, variety that we use in the lab, which I can't remember what I mean. Probably we use an old an old variety that's not on the national list anymore, like C- C- Cadenza or something like that. Yeah. But you know, but once once it's in that wheat, that once the modification is in that strain, in that variety, then you can cross it with um, with other varieties, with more modern varieties, to introduce the the modification, uh, introduce the edit into it. Okay. So, I mean, again, it's one of these, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it would require you to do a number of crosses and back crosses, but it wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be doing it for 10 years. Yeah. And then that would allow you to stack traits. Um, so, for example, you could have the low acrylamide trait as well as some kind of virus resistance. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason why you can't do that. I mean, if you think, I mean, that's what's done all the time with with conventional plant breeding you know plant breeders are continuously selecting usually by you know advanced molecular techniques they're selecting for a particular combination of genes or alleles um, yeah and 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 you know 
and obviously because gene editing is just in my view just an advanced form of of plant breeding then you just use exactly the same same approaches in terms of selecting the, the genes that you want the difference just is that the genes that you want have been edited with the gene ge lines as opposed to generated by natural variation or mutagenesis and i guess the fact that you're doing that in fields in the uk that's quite promising really for growers because it means um that these crops would be very much suited to our climate absolutely i mean you know and whether you know and that's why as like i said it's really i think it's really important for us to do the to do field trials whether it's gm or ge or gm and ge combined in one plant it sort of again it sort of compresses that timeline you know that pipeline from going from the lab to the field to the farmer which at the moment is you know is sort of decades long you know and i and and what we really need to do is is shorten it as much as possible so that the farmer gets access to these new technologies as quickly as possible because it'll help you know basically it'll help them you know make a you know you know do do their job more efficiently make more money be more, um, you know, environmentally sort of less intrusive, you know, provide, you know, a, a maybe a better product. Yeah. And, you know, that's really, the, you know, that's my ambition is to try and do that. Yeah. And do you have any concerns at all about anything, you know, um, environmentally or mutations or anything like that? Well, you know, it's funny because, I mean, that's one of the advantages of doing these field trials you know and we've been doing our you know these gm and ge field trials uh, we've been doing gm field trials since 2012 and we've been doing the gene editing field trials since 2018 and you know these are subject to quite careful regulation by defra and you have to get approval from defra to do these field trials and you have to write a really detailed risk assessment of you know where you have to consider all of these things you know you know is there a risk to environment is there an invest in risk to human health is there a risk to animals you know is it going to do something bad to the to the soil to the soil microbiome and you have to think about all of these things and and come up with a risk assessment and and i think you know and that that's been a really useful process um because it allows you to come to the conclusion and say that actually, you know, I don't think there are any risks here, but, you know, the key thing is I've actually thought about it and I've written it down and it's been evaluated by DEFRA and also by their independent committee that looks at these things. Yeah. So I'm sort of, I'm, I'm quite confident, um, you know, that, that, you know, what we're doing is, is safe, um, you know, and, and, and also, you know, that, that we can say with our hands on our hearts it's like yeah we've thought about the risks you know and we're confident that there aren't you know that there's there's no significant risks yeah and of course the next pillar to that is making sure that there's actually a market for it and of course that um consumers are willing to buy it the, the critical thing is to be able to demonstrate a benefit to the consumer so if you make you know if you've got a loaf of bread that is saying well actually you know this is you know this contains less acrylamide than the one you know that was you know that was that doesn't have this trait um you know well maybe then the consumer can say well well, that you know that's you know i can understand that that's a good benefit you've got to make the argument to the consumer of saying there's a benefit here for us um and i think you know i think we've moved a very long way from where we were you know 20 or 25 years ago when when uh you know when we started first talking about the potential of gm 
and why why people you know should you know should be interested in in accepting the technology i think it was always assumed that people might just accept it because you know we said it was a good thing you know now you really have to explain what the benefits are and provide the evidence and yeah you know again that's something that i think rothamsted has got a really strong reputation for which is providing you know providing impartial and robust scientific evidence i think it's important to to have these discussions about the technology and i'm definitely i'm i'm fully you know committed to to being as open and transparent about what it is that we do you know that we've always done that with our field trials we've said you know we put out as much information as possible about them and say to people if you want to come and have a look come and have a look you know you know we're not it's not you know we're not like some shady organization <laughs> uh you know operating behind sort of smoke glass you know windows and things like that it's you know we're we're completely open you can walk all over our um you know walk all over our land you know over our experimental farm because there's lots of public footpaths yeah uh you know and i th- but i think that's part of also demonstrating to the to the wider public that there that the technology is safe and we have confidence in it and there isn't anything to worry about it you know bigger irony is you know as we we are sort of hoping to come out the end of a global pandemic you know it is advanced molecular sciences and genetic engineering that is going to provide the solution in the form of the vaccines yeah exactly you know i mean those vaccines have all been produced by by genetic modification yeah i mean you know so it's a bit ironic if you know people throw their hands up and say we don't like this Thanks to both Professor Napier and Alice Dyer for that. And for more from Alice and her team on all things arable, check out the Crop It Like It's Hot podcast. Now, despite COVID-19 forcing fundraising efforts to grind to a halt, farming charities and their army of volunteers have continued to offer their vital services to farming families in need. After the last 10 months, their work is perhaps more critical than ever. But how are the farming help charities managing? And now we're outside of Europe and with a new agricultural policy, I wanted to find out what impact they think this will have on the people they support. I'm Alicia Chivers. I'm the Chief Executive at RABI. And I'm Bill Young and I work for the Addington Fund. So looking back on 2020, it really was a year like no other, wasn't it? What would you say were the biggest impacts in terms of RABI, Alicia, and and also on the farmers that you support? Um, I think probably, Olivia, unsurprisingly to anybody, it has been on the charity, the impact of losing a lot of our fundraising. We are voluntarily funded um, and we get the, a large majority of that funding via our volunteer fundraising committee. So we have 46 dotted around the country and they raise money for us largely at events and through face-to-face fundraising. And obviously, since the start of the pandemic, then that has been completely sort of nullified. What would you say was the extent of the financial black hole? Well, we looked at the time at trying to forecast back in in March 2020, and we predicted that we would have about a three million pound deficit. Now, that isn't in totality lost fundraising, but it probably at least doubled our um, expected deficit and it's going to be in line with that so it's a significant um, amount of funding has been lost although we've also sort of still been amazed by the resilience of our fundraisers and perhaps we'll come a little bit later to sort of talk about 
some of the amazing activity that has still gone on from people supporting us, which has um, really been fantastic still. Mm -hmm. And Bill, is that something that you've seen at Addington Fund in terms of, you know, how you financially taken the hit? Yeah, well, the COVID year sort of coincided with our financial year. So um, our year ends on the 31st of March. So it's pretty well totally run together. So we've lost probably £200,000 in fundraising activity, nothing like what Alicia's lost. But I suppose our real plus point is we are a pretty sustainable charity. So it hasn't hurt us in as much as it could have done. And um, we're in a position now that if some... If you give a pound out of your Yorkshire pocket, Olivia, it, it would still be able to give 90p in the pound away to a good cause. So in that respect, we've done quite well. And that actually, in many ways, due to the generosity of our main donators, uh, this year won't turn out too badly for us. However, I'm pretty worried about next year, because if we don't start our fundraising activity again, you know, we could start sliding down again. So that's going to be more of a challenge next year than this year, which will surprise one or two people, I think. And in terms of the impact on the farmers you support, I mean, obviously, from a financial point of view, cash flows have been tight for, for pretty much everyone. I don't think there's a there's a business, is there, apart from retailers who haven't been affected financially. But what are the other issues that have, have been flagged up to you in 2020, Alicia? Well, we have, outside of the direct COVID, so we have um, had farmers who have been directly impacted by the virus, that's loss of income, but also then through illness. So we do provide support farm workers um, as part of our our package of support. But I think it's probably, again, unsurprisingly, that there is a massive impact on well-being. You know, people haven't been able to get out and about. I'm not saying farmers are always rushing around the country, but, you know, the show season, you know, none of us got to go to the shows, which is a huge part of farmers' social life. The isolation and the impact of the pandemic on top of the other stresses that farming people are already facing in 2020, it is that process of another factor on top. So whilst COVID as a, as a factor in itself has, has had an impact without a doubt on people's ability to, to generate income, the stress of looking at EU exit, transition under the agricultural bill. We've had some extreme weather over the last few years that have really already impacted on farmers' ability to be profitable. And then we've had COVID on top of that. So it's the impact of many levels of stress that have really now you know, come to the fore of people not being in a position to have good mental health and well-being generally Mm -hmm. and I suppose that brings us quite nicely doesn't it into the research that you guys are heading up for this year can you just tell us a little bit more about that please absolutely so we very much feel that we have to do more to support our community we know that the impacts of what's happening now are going to have a long-term response with our people. We know that, you know, transition is is a long-term stressor for our people. What we don't have is a really good idea of where people are at the moment, and particularly around well-being. And I use the term well-being in quite a holistic way. I'm looking at both physical and mental well-being, 
but actually also about the well-being then of the farm business. So about 18 months ago, because it's quite a long-term process, RABI committed to undertaking the largest research project for the farming community in England and Wales to really get a line in the sand asking farming people to let us know what is impacting on you and how is that affecting you and again in that holistic manner looking at physical mental well-being physical well-being and the business well-being and from that and we will be making the findings from that survey available publicly but from that piece of research then we believe we have a really strong foundation to as a sector find solutions for the key issues that are affecting our farming community the research has been incredibly well received because i think there is an absolute understanding that we really do need to understand directly from farming people what matters to them and how they are feeling good bad indifferent you know this isn't about trying to get a specific uh, result this is about genuinely going out to the farming community to understand how they are and where they are right now and we have been overwhelmed by the positive response it is a very necessary um, response because we are looking at getting a return rate of 26,000 responses. Now, this is pretty much unheard of, but we are really hopeful that with the fantastic support from lots of sector supporters like the Farmers Guardian, we can achieve that. Bill, we, we mentioned the DEFRA pathway document that was announced a couple of weeks ago. There was a really big play, wasn't there, on this issue of helping farmers retire and leave the industry with dignity. I just wondered, that's really going to affect charities such as Addington, isn't it, in terms of housing? Yeah, Um, we've got five very clear areas of operation. First of all, we do disaster relief and keep a pot of money to help farmers who get disease outbreaks or perhaps prolonged inclement weather. We get um, we we run a very successful string of retirement houses. We do affordable houses to keep youngsters in the countryside in their chosen rural location. Uh, And we do some help for farm workers, both working and um, retired, if uh, they qualify financially. And our latest innovation is that we're doing a young entrance scheme because we've got one or two legacy farms coming our way. And I'm a firm believer, and this is a personal hobby horse of mine, is that the first generation farmers bring something different to agriculture. Uh, And that could be an absolute uh, bonus come the agricultural bill, because there's no doubt they are going to try and lower the average age of farmers. Coming back to your point about retirement homes, yes, we've got about um, 50 retirement homes in the UK at the moment, which uh, we use for um, mainly tenant farmers who come to the end of their um, three-generation tenancy and quite simply can't afford to buy a retirement home. So that's where we step in and either buy it completely or do it on a shared equity basis. We've bought a house this morning for a tenant farmer who's actually living in a caravan. He had nowhere else to live. So that is quite rewarding. And I wonder how many more cases like that we're going to get. The agricultural bill uh, come 2024, there's no doubt there's a clear provision in that uh, for farmers to draw down a lump sum between 24 and 28 for their BPS payments which is quite interesting because I think quite a few uh, tenant farmers in particular will, will, will opt for that option uh, and uh, it will give us an interesting challenge. Uh, so we're going to spend the next two or three years trying to build up our housing reserves so we can uh, meet the demand, which, which will stretch us, but we've got some fantastic backers and um, 
and people who support us. So I, I, I think it, it, I think we can rise to it. What does worry me is the next three years till 2024, there's farmers who probably would retire earlier than that, but probably will hang on in there uh, mm -hmm. just to get the lump sum in 2024. So we'll see what happens on that. So uh, I have appealed to DEFRA to try and bring that forward, but I don't think that's going to uh, change the world straight away, but it's something they should consider. And Alicia, in terms of future policy and, and how, how that's changing, what would you say were the, the other pinch points that you can see on the horizon for farmers? I think, I mean, Olivia, obviously we're, we've got all that comes with the, the EU transition. We are really calling to try and get guidance. And yes, you know, we, we had the, the ATP guidance was issued a couple of weeks ago about transition but there's still really quite a limited amount of detail. So it's very difficult for people to plan. And without planning, it's very difficult for people to feel any level of stability. Mm. And none of us, you know, we're all vulnerable. However much, you know, we like to think as a community, we're robust and resilient, and that in itself carries some dangers of being labelled in that way. We are all vulnerable and not having that stability to be able to plan, particularly in farming, when, you know, there is an absolute... We all plan ahead. It's part of our lives. We have to be able to plan brings more and more sort of uncertainty and pressure. So, you know, we are working on plans to have additional support available for people dealing with the physical, mental and business impacts of all of these uncertainties hitting over the next sort of seven to 10 years. So it's a long term support plan and actually probably one of our biggest challenges is that there is an expectation within a huge element of the farming community um, to be strong and robust and all that comes with that so actually the challenge is to normalize that we are here to provide a service to support them be that bill with Addington you know ourselves RABI FCN, RSABI and many other support bodies that are out there both locally and nationally is almost I think our biggest challenge next year is trying to help to normalise that relationship mm -hmm. so it isn't always about crisis management and certainly a focus for RABI is about this preventative approach, proactive approach, support little and often is ideal. Crisis support, we're all here to absolutely provide support in that crisis situation, but that's really not our preference. But we all have to, and we're very much asking our community to really have these frank and open conversations about trying to normalise the fact that we are not superhuman in farming. We are human, and with that becomes vulnerability. And admitting that we are vulnerable isn't a weakness. It doesn't show that you don't have strength. It shows the opposite, that you have the strength to be able to accept your idiosyncrasies and flaws and to find the tools to help you build resilience and move forward really positively. That's okay. our biggest challenge. Just to back Alicia up, you know, the uncertainty is the greatest challenge facing all of us in agriculture and any industry at the moment, I think. But I think it was Desmond Tutu that says that there comes a point when you have to stop fishing people up the, out of the river and wander uh, upstream to find out why they're entering it in the first place. Mm. And uh, it's a great phrase to try and uh, crack the problem. But I think, you know, you can't go on helping people continually in the charity circuit if they keep on coming back time and time again. And 
sometimes, and I learned this in my quality assurance days, you know, helping them to exit with a dignified plan with a head held up is probably the best way forward for one or two people. But it should never be made compulsory. And in terms of funding and support, I know we, we touched on it earlier. I mean, there's obviously been this big financial hole left left by the pandemic. How, how do you go about filling this funding gap? And is it something you're asking the government to help with? From our point of view at REBI, I mean, we are very privileged as a charity. We're 160 years old and some of our predecessors have been careful with investments. So the bottom line is, we can continue to support people at level we need to, but only for, you know, even for a charity like REBI, that is only sustainable for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, And I'm hoping that the research, again, will give us a really good platform for REBI, but also for the other charities, then absolutely, we are looking to government to support um, and both as a DEFRA and Welsh government, without a doubt, that is a resource that we are already in discussions with, um, both as groups of charities and individually. And I think it's about determining that need that we can then evidence to governments that our services can help to support those needs and answer that support need for them. But yes, without a doubt, Olivia, government funding is going to be a part of our requirement going forwards. And Bill, how about you? You know, is, is government listening? Yeah, actually, I, I, I do believe that. I mean, there is a wind of change in DEFRA and they do appear to be uh, listening. Um, there's a lady called Janet Hughes, who is one of the directors, and she's done some fantastic workshops over the last six weeks, uh, just gauging opinion and, uh, and problem solving. And I've done three of those and it's been an absolute pleasure to be involved in them. Uh, and you do feel you're actually helping to shape policy in the future, whether it get up to ministerial level, I'm not sure. But it's um, it's a wonderful, um, wonderful to be listened to. But coming back to Alicia's point, yes, the five national charities in farming, that's FCN, ourselves, Forage Aid, RABI and RSABI, we're all part of Farming Health. And we've benefited fantastically from, yes, from DEFRA support and from um, from corporate sponsorship like the NFU Mutual, who've been absolutely brilliant as well. So uh, they have helped fill the gap this year and it will get us through this year and uh, give us a strong platform for going into next year. And we hope fundraising activities can resume. Let's hope Billy's right and fundraising, as well as life in general, can get back to some sense of normality this year. And just a reminder that if you or someone you know is struggling or just needs someone to talk to, the Farming Help Charities have trained counsellors who understand farming and can offer help and support. Simply visit rabi.org.uk forward slash cooth for the online counselling service or call 03000 111999. That's the Farming Help number and it's where you can access free, impartial and confidential support from all four charities. Remember, it's always okay to ask for help. Well, that's it for this week, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Why not subscribe so you don't miss any of the new episodes of Over the Farm Gate? But, until next week, from us at Farmers Guardian, thank you for listening. We hope you stay safe and well, and goodbye for now.